What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I am joined by Kim, also known as Mama Vester on Twitter. You can find her full portfolio on Savvy Trader as well. <clears throat> Kim shares great knowledge on Twitter spaces all the time, specifically on the Wolf Twitter spaces. Um, so shout out to our guy, Wolf. We shout him out a couple times, but we talk about, you know, finding Alpha, her background, uh, you know, what she's kind of looking for in the current market uh, volatility and all those, uh, you know, the various situations are going on the macro, you know it. So as always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice. If you're listening to this, this is, we disclose all our holdings. Uh, Kim is not a financial advisor and neither am myself. So please do not take anything we say here as our, uh, as financial advice. It's strictly the opinion of Kim and myself. And if you're listening, check out the YouTube go to youtube search green candle hit that subscribe button help me get to 1k subscribers keep supporting the show and if you're listening on audio hit that subscribe button wherever you get podcasts all right that's enough for me let's get to kim what's up everybody i'm back with another edition of the macro insights podcast where i have kim mama vester who focuses on market psychology futures options and has a long-term portfolio so we're going to talk about everything that she's seeing in the market all the crazy things that are going on we're going to break it all down for you but first Big shout out to my sponsors. Shout out to Pleb Lab down in Austin, Texas. It's the number one hacking space in the country. If you haven't been down to Austin, you need to go down and check it out. They got a lot of great events. They have a Noster Devs course right now that is off and running. It's an eight-hour course. You could start and become a Noster Dev for some open source uh, social media if you would like to, and it's only eight hours. You can start from like no coding background and become a master dev. So be sure to check that out at pleblab.com. Also, shout out to Idaho Armored Vaults. Bob Coleman and team have been offering uh, some of the lowest spreads, if not the lowest spread of any single precious metals dealer uh, that I've seen in the entire United States. So go to goldsilvervault.com, contact Bob and his team and get yourself started so you can get investing in precious metals. Um, usually we see, you know, if you go and look at the historic gold and silver charts throughout the entire year, you know, obviously it's not investing in vice or anything like that, but you see, it usually takes off in the second half of the year. So maybe it's time to get in. Uh, so call up Bob and his team to see if it's a good fit for you. And that's enough from just me. Let's get Kim up here. Kim, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. We got introduced on a space thanks to Wolf. So shout out yep. to Wolf. and uh, He's amazing. Yeah, the great spaces that he uh, puts on. But for those who don't know you, why don't you tell us a little bit about your investing background and kind of how you got started investing? So I have always loved the stock market. I've been interested in the stock market since I was probably like 15 years old. Um, I don't remember exactly what got me interested in the market, but I'm from the generation Gen X where we still had newspapers and I would look up ticker symbols. Back then it was Nordstrom. I'm from the Seattle area. And so Nordstrom was kind of our like number one firm or, or business here, as was Boeing. And so I would look up those ticker symbols. But, you know, I didn't really know how to invest then. You had to go through a broker. There wasn't access. So that's kind of where I started my interest. And then Later in life, I just started investing. I would read Money Magazine. I would invest, you know, my $100 a month. Um, I would had a stockbroker. I was like an early investor, not early, but kind of early into Costco. And that was the time that Microsoft really started taking off and people were making a lot of money, like owning those stocks. So that was kind of like my history of how I got interested. But I wasn't individually trading yet. All right. Well, yeah, then tell us kind of where you're at now in your investing journey. Like, you know, I kind of listed off some of the things that you're focusing on, but, you know, where are you kind of, I guess, focused on right now? Obviously, we have a lot of market volatility. It's kind of been, you know, stagnant. It seems like, you know, uh, some growth stocks have been taken off this year. So where are you kind of, uh, you know, looking at your portfolio and kind of analyzing things as of right now? Well, really quick, I'll just say what got me interested in investing individually is about in 2018, I had an actual stockbroker and 
the market had taken a big step back and my stockbroker didn't have good information about how to hedge your portfolio. And that's really what started my own interest. And then obviously with, you know, online trading, it became easier to access trading. And so I got really excited about it. And the account that I had at my stockbroker, I ended up taking over. And so some of my original ways of looking at the market and that still hold true today is how do I stay long in positions because I'm a long-term investor, but help to protect my drawdown. And so a lot of that I use through option selling, through selling futures, um, obviously trimming if your portfolio gets too high, putting on different option strategies that help protect some of my downside. So I know that didn't quite answer your question, but wanted to give that little bit of history of how I kind of got to where I was today. Yeah, no, no worries at all. But yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it seems like it's kind of an interesting time in the market, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we've had, um, you know, the 2020 boom, and then now it seems like we're kind of like floating along with certain stocks and certain companies like really taking off. And it seems like there's kind of like the dilapidated earnings reports, right? I mean, like mm -hmm. their expectations are a little bit lower. So, you know, I'll leave it kind of broad for you and a little bit more open ended. But how are you kind of viewing the the market right now? And like, what's your kind of, uh, I guess, future outlook for maybe the next uh, quarter or so? Well, I have to say in October, my husband came home and said, you have to look at chat GPT and you need to get invested in Nivdia. So he has some people that he knows, I'm not going to name the companies, um, but he has some people he knows in tech. Um, and I was like, what's this chat GPT? Didn't really know what it was. And at that time, the market was still going down, right? In October, we were still having the correction pretty much through the end of December, beginning of January. And I say that because as I was being made aware of the AI theme and the chat GPT, I did not recognize, I did get long Nivdia, but not nearly like what you would have wanted to get long at that time, right? I didn't realize that we'd have this, this V-shaped recovery, essentially. Hit the bottom, fly right off the bottom, literally in a straight line, basically for the last six months, except for the time when, you know, the, the banks were kind of in that, uh, what do you want to call it, dilution from SVB and some of the other ones. But, you know, basically it's been straight off the bottom. So I was, I'm always long stocks. I'm a long-term investor, but I wasn't as long as I would have liked to have been. And now that we're kind of hitting this peak, I really feel like it's time to, the market's going to take a breather, take a step back. I can't predict, are we going to go up another, you know, few hundred points in the um, NASDAQ, for example. Um, but definitely, I think I'm being cautious. So I've taken some risk off the table and definitely have been putting hedges on. But at the same time, being really careful not to deploy that cash that I'm so eagerly wanting to because I had so much cash on the side. So trying to not get the FOMO. And I think that's the hardest thing not to do when the market's flying. Yeah. So, I mean, like, how do you kind of, uh, I guess, reel that back, right? I mean, it seems like the, there was kind of the, the FOMO craze, right, during during COVID, right? I mean, everybody mm -hmm. was getting into the market with with GameStop. And, and obviously, there's a lot more, you know, spread of information. You know, obviously, mm -hmm. we met on Twitter spaces. I guess it's rebranded to X as of, you know, today or yesterday. But, <laughs> I <don't> know. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm calling it Twitter for now. I can't get used to the X. Exactly. Like, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm originally from Chicago, so I still know that the giant tower downtown is the Sears Tower. So mm -hmm. that's how I kind of uh, how I, uh, you know, talk to, how I'm wording it to people is like, I, I you know, it, it's Twitter. I don't I don't know yeah. what else to say. Like, I'm And not the blue bird is like iconic, right? Exactly. So I can't, you know, X can stand for so many things, but the blue bird only stands for Twitter. A hundred percent. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, in this, you know, I, obviously we have like a, a massive amounts of spreads of information, right? I mean, you, you talked about, you know, just kind of like reading things in the paper pr previously. Now you can go on Twitter, search, uh, 
search a stock ticker and see, mm -hmm. you know, a bunch of people's different opinions. You know, everybody seemingly has like a Substack newsletter. Um, you know, there's Reddit, there's all these other mm -hmm. places. So, you know, how do you avoid, uh, you know, maybe the FOMO type of investing when it comes to, you know, obviously like the, the massive amounts of information that we have now um, and everybody's got an opinion on a certain yeah. stuff. Honestly, I just, what I do is I look for people that I trust because in the beginning when I got on Twitter, like you said, social media, you don't know who are the pump and dumps. They're just literally trying to pump a stock, get people in it. They can, you know, move these smaller stocks and then, you know, dump them. And who are the real people to follow that have good information that are trying to, that are authentic, transparent, and I think over time, you just learn to kind of shut out that noise. It's hard to do at first. But, you know, here's the thing. Like you said, everybody has an opinion. So even the, you know, people at JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs, they've all been wrong, right? Like they were all saying the market was going to go to 3,200, 2,900, worst crash ever. One piece of advice I have is tune out anyone says that the market's crashing tomorrow. That's number one. Anyone sa that says that you need to get in immediately, there's always time, right? You might miss some upside on something, but at the same time, markets always ebb and flow, right? You just have to be, for myself, I need to be patient and sit on my hands. However, there's always ways to take advantage of the market, right? So I use black box stocks. Um, and I also, my two things are black box stocks and tasty trade. And I'm not sitting here trying to promote it. I don't get money for it, but that is what I use option flow, right? So where I've not had enough cash, cash deployed, what I've been trying to do is look at where are people putting their money. And what I'm doing is putting some money to work in different areas where I see money is going into. So those are more swing positions for me versus long-term positions. So I have my long-term investments, but then I'm trying to trade around that, right? Like, for example, I saw a lot of flow going into the IWM, which is the Russell 2000. And so what I did is I got long the RTY, which are the futures. I like doing that because there's no theta decay. And there's no gamma squeeze. And I can also trade it 24-7 if I needed to for some reason. Like, let's say overnight, the RTY jumped 50 points. I can get out or I can have my stop set or my buyback set. So when I heard that option flow go out on IDM, I wasn't going to, I mean, I'm sorry, IWM. I wasn't going to buy the index and I didn't want to buy the options, but I went long the futures. And I, you know, end up, that ended up being a really good swing trade for me to get some alpha in my portfolio, put some money to work, but then put that cash back to the side again. Yeah, I got it. And then, you know, that that makes a lot of sense, you know, when it when it comes down to it, right, right? Looking at the volumes, I mean, it just kind of makes sense, right? You you're kind of just mm -hmm. tracking the money opposed to to doing that. But you know, you 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 mentioned uh, you know, a little bit earlier about knowing when to get out and kind of like liquidate, which I think is always kind of like the, one of the more interesting questions. Um, you know, whether it's um, you know, kind of going in on options or whether it's like kind of a long-term investment. Um, you know, kind of how do you determine when you know, it's a good time to sell a stock, right? I mean, because it seems yeah. like, you know, uh, some people who are, are long-term investors, you know, they, they subscribe to the Warren Buffett theory, right? I mean, you should buy a stock with the intention of never selling it. But, you know, sometimes there is a good time to sell it. And sometimes, you know, um, you, you should really give that a better look. So, you know, how do mm -hmm. you kind of evaluate that situation and evaluate your portfolio as to when to liquidate certain positions? So, there's certain, I have a core set of holdings, Apple, Costco, Microsoft. Um, it's actually on Elite Trader Funding. Wolf talks about, not Elite Trader Funding, I'm sorry, um, Savvy Trader. I apologize. So my whole portfolio is up there in my, you know, long-term investment account and my, uh, not my trading account, not for options, but I have my core holdings. I look for those core holdings not to get above 7 to 8% of my total, total portfolio, right? So if I see like, for example, Microsoft started flying up. So I've trimmed some of that position because I want to bring it back into check with I don't want it more than 8% of my portfolio. So when something gets 
out of whack, right? I want a balanced portfolio. That's when I personally trim it. Some people are looking for a, a double or a 10 bagger. That's when they'll trim it. I'm really looking at percentage of my long-term investments. And that's mainly because I don't want to be beholden to any single stock. I think we've all seen, you know, even Apple has had a 20% haircut on an earnings. Um, however, I will say the Warren Buffett approach overall is the right approach, especially for young people, especially for people that, you know, want to make money over time. You want to be invested in really good companies and really good companies long-term. So I've held Costco long-term, Microsoft long-term, Apple long-term, and I trim them to get them back within that percentage again, but I rarely ever sell out of them. The only time I did that was COVID. When that whole downturn happened, I was selling more, but I was also hedged. So I was making so much money on the other side with my puts that I was trimming my stocks as it was going down. But, you know, I don't recommend that. I mean, over time, stocks always go up. And if you're in good companies, then those good companies are going to keep going up over time. How do you determine the the good companies though? Because I mean, it seems like you know you you, you listed stock or you listed Costco, Apple, um, you know Microsoft. Obviously, those are you know some of the the core um, you know uh, stocks that, that people think about, right? I mean, you know, obviously there's the the there's the Fang stocks at, at mm -hmm. points in time. You know, maybe those aren't performing. All of them are performing as well. But you know, that was kind of like the mantra previously. Is that something that you kind of look at, right? Like like maybe like some of the I guess, big dogs, so to speak, you know, the, the yeah. top seven or what, whatnot, is that kind of how you evaluate it? Or um, are you over, are, are you just trying to evaluate companies that, you know, maybe you start to see pop up and, you know, say, you know, are, are doing great work and then you see them all over, maybe they aren't the biggest company, but you enjoy their product, that kind of thing. So for me, honestly, it has to do with, I think, what what are we using? What's my family using? Where are we going? And obviously, you need to have a, a company with a good balance sheet, right? You want to make sure that they have cash. You don't want to just be investing in a SPAC or some like, you know, fly-by-night company. We saw what happened during that. You don't want to be just going to, you know, indebted companies that literally have no cash flow and no runway, right? So that is important. But I also have a job. I'm a mental health therapist and a university professor. And so I don't literally have the time to be looking through, you know, everybody's full on balance sheet. So I'm really looking at what companies do I personally use. I always have my ear to the ground, like with Nivdia, right? Like, what am I seeing? I live in Seattle. We have so many friends and people in our community in the tech space. So I'm listening to them, like, what products are they they buying, like for the gaming chips, for Nivdia, or for the AI? You know, I don't personally have a Nivdia, you know, I'm not buying Nivdia chips, right? But I'm using the AI technology and I know that that's what they're empowering. And I know that that's where a lot of my friends are investing because they're looking at the future and they're in that space. So, however, I do have stocks that are smaller positions. So I, if I'm looking more for a stock that's a swing trade or for a stock, for example, like Rivian, I'm a big fan of Rivian. Um, they have about a two-year runway. I see them everywhere and they have a mom car. And so being a mom, you don't, you know, a lot of these EV companies, they don't have that. I know it sounds silly, but I'm having to, you know, have kids in tow, have their friends with me, but I'm also want to be environmentally friendly. So I usually keep any more riskier position to under 2% of my portfolio. And with Rivian, that has been an amazing trade, right? What got me in that is I just started seeing them everywhere. And it started like, you know, being like, wait, I'm taking notice of this. And I'm like, why am I seeing these cars everywhere? And so that got me to start looking at the company, finding out, you know, how long their runway is with cash that they're not going to fold overnight. That's my risky bet because I have about 2% of my portfolio in that. 
Um, some swing trades, I'm going to look up at my computer here. Some other swing trades I have is Target because that got so beaten down. So buying companies, you know, there was a lot of, polit first of all, their margins were, you know, crashed, right? Essentially because of the self-checkout, they were having a lot of theft. And so they just had a horrible earnings season. And then also the political fallout um, also caused them to crash more. Now Target has been staying right about 130. I still love to talk, shop at Target. You know, Ulta has a partnership with them. My kids use Ulta, I use Ulta. And so when I saw it start stabilizing, I decided to, I was already in a little bit, but then I decided to up my um, investment in it. And so I, I, that's not to me like a, like a risky trade, so to speak, but they've just, it's more that buy companies when they get beaten down, when maybe they're overly beaten down and they shouldn't have been. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, as you said, it you didn't you view Target, you know, maybe as like a, a risky company, right? But I, I kind of want to dive into that, that statement a little bit more, because, you know, you own Costco, right, which, mm -hmm. which is your bigger, uh, I guess, like core staples, so to speak. That's my number one holding. Okay, that's great. Yeah. yeah, good to know, which is like a consumer staple, right? And uh, mm -hmm. obviously, Target is very similar in a sense, right? It's a consumer staple, so to speak, like Walmart, maybe in that same basket as well. But you said one of your consumer sta staples was Apple. Obviously, you know, Apple's a big tech company. But generally, tech. did I say consumer staple? No, I meant uh, tech. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. I'm kind of referring to Apple as more of a tech company, because, um, you know, in generally speaking, they, they you know, the, I guess the narrative around tech is that it's a little bit more risky, right? I mean, that's, mm -hmm. um, you know, you see a little bit more of the volatility, but you have it as like a long-term holding. So I'm kind of curious as to how, you know, you necessarily view, I guess, more of like a risky somewhat trade or risky investment opposed to, you know, maybe, uh, I guess a longer term, uh, safe quote unquote investment like an Apple or a Microsoft, although those are tech companies. Yeah, no, it's a great question because if you think in like 2009, you know, when the market crashed, there were a lot of safe quote unquote investments such as like Bear Stearns, that was a 120 year company as we know. And, you know, my husband had actually worked for them. So uh, in Chicago, a 120 year company and they basically went to zero, you know, $2, but zero overnight, right? So it's not like there's any safe company. No investment is safe. And however, it's looking at, like I said, how much cash do they have on hand? What are their sales? What is their gross margin? Um, who's investing in them? Do they have insider buying? I mean, when you look at the position Warren Buffett has in Apple and how many insiders hold Apple, I don't know what the current figure is, but it would be probably hard. And you saw this in 2022, Apple really, Apple held very well. Um, you know, Google went down 50%, Amazon went down 50%. And I think the drawdown on Apple was around 30, right? Now, how I'm managing those drawdowns, though, is I'm often selling covered calls against it. So I do, I do sell covered calls when things get toppy up here. It's not going to completely protect my downside, but it's going to help me to bring in some income, not income. That's the wrong way to say it. It's going to help protect a little bit of my downside. So it's buffering the loss, right? And also I do what's called hedge wrappers when the market kind of gets toppy where you sell a call, buy a put. So then you are, I did that on Target actually. When I heard the news about Target and the um, political fallout, I just knew they were going to push that stock down. And at that time it was almost 150. So I didn't want to get out of Target. So I sold, sold a call and bought a put and essentially covered basically the whole downturn on that. So, but yeah, you can never be, okay, a company to me like Rivian is risky because they don't have really more than two years leeway um, as far as cash goes. And they're not proven yet. Like who knows 
how their sales are really going to go just because I'm seeing them all over the road. You know, it's kind of anecdotal. Are they really going to be able to take on Tesla? Are they going to have the dollars and the manufacturing ability to scale, to be able to make their trucks and mom car at the level to keep up with the demand? Right now they can't. So, and then how much capital are they going to have to outlay to be able to build out those manufacturing facilities in order to be able to keep up, you know, and their, their cars are fairly expensive. They're, you know, they're not, while Tesla was reducing their prices, Rivian has still kept their prices high. So to me, that's a more risky bet, right? They could literally fold and go to zero. I don't think if you're looking at it, that Apple's going to fold and go to zero. That doesn't mean they won't 20 years from now or 30 yeah. years from now. We've seen like Sears, Kmart, what else? Yahoo, not Yahoo, but uh, AOL. Yeah. No, I mean, that that's uh, that's 100 percent right. I mean, like that that's something that that, you know, I, I, I guess kind of sticks with me. Right. I mean, because like if you look at the companies like in the year 2000 compared to now, some of the biggest companies as like, you know, stock, uh, I guess, like the top seven or 10 or whatever, um, that the top uh, companies that were in the S&P 500 at that time by market cap are, you know, almost not even really around, not even really name brands now. So, I mean, I, as much as I'd like to think like, you know, I'm going to invest in Apple for the rest of its, you know, maybe uh, it's, it's life. I I'm also kind of wary that, you know, at some point in time, you know, that maybe, maybe my, Apple may get dethroned. Maybe there's some other smartphone uh, that becomes uh, uh, I guess, you know, in a sense, uh, the dethrones the iPhone. I mean, I can't really foresee the future, but I mean, it is something that I kind of, you know, keep an eye on, right? Because I mean, tech's ever changing. Um, and yeah, as you kind of described it, right? I mean, some of these uh, bigger guys have more leeway, but that doesn't mean another smaller player can kind of come in and, you know, maybe uh, de dethrone the top dog, so to speak. So, um, but on that note, right? I mean, we, we do have kind of an interesting market dynamic right now right i mean obviously we had uh I, you we've alluded to it a couple times but the covid crash and like the run-up mm -hmm. right that the kind of market hysteria that surrounded that and we've kind of been floating around right i mean we've had a few companies do really well and then we've had a lot of the the market kind of stay you know relatively flat it seems right i mean it seems like the s p 500s being carried by you know seven to ten ish companies but obviously there's some that are doing better than others um, so with that, like outlook, right. I mean, you said you have, you know, cash, so to speak on the, on the sidelines, like yeah, ready to be deployed, but also you're trying yeah. to hold back on that. So, um, you know, with a lot of like, you know, the, the potential macroeconomic factors, you know, how do you look at that? You know, do you, do you analyze anything maybe as to, you know, the CPI prints or, you know, um, the inflation or the interest rates of, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve? Do you uh, look at any of those things before, um, you know, maybe maybe not trading on the, those days specifically on a CPI print, but maybe looking at, you know, that as far as like, you know, maybe a long-term investment. Do you look at any of these like kind of like macroeconomic factors prior to, to making an investment? Yeah, for sure. Um, or that, that'll be one of the things that will cause me to put short hedges on, right? Like I might sell, like right now I have a couple of short NQs on to kind of, because I'm so heavy tech to protect my, tech side. Um, one thing just to go back really quick before I fully answer that, um, in the 2000s, it was Sun Microsystems, Oracle, Qualcomm. And, you know, we don't know of Sun Microsystems anymore. Oracle's still around. Qualcomm, it took them 20 years, but even with Microsoft, it took them 20 years, at least a decade. That's not fair. It wasn't 20 years, but it took them a decade, 15 years to get back to where they, where they were, you know? So what I also like to do, and I think it's really important for anybody who's investing and isn't a, like a full-time trader, is I also have my 401k. It's all indexed. I don't trade it. You know, I'll rebalance it sometimes. Like I put a, some in the Russell when the Russell went way down. You know, if you're, if people are new investors or they're, you know, they're not taking advantage of their 401ks, the first thing to do is index because then you're not vulnerable to any single stock, right? 
As far as the macros for my trading account and my long-term investments that are not indexed, I do look at the interest rates. It's concerning when it's starting to go over 4%. I look at them every day. And so, yes, it gives me caution and pause. I won't sell out of my major positions, but what I'll do is I'll put short futures on. Right now, I have, I do have some puts. Um, I don't usually buy puts that often, but I actually did buy some spy puts near the money for October. So I like to go about 90 days out on puts. And then if I lose that money, it's just the cost of doing business, right? I don't have someone managing my portfolio. So I have a certain percentage, like about 0.5% that I'm like, I'm willing to lose this money, but I feel better having a hedge on because I don't. So, and also I'm about 30% cash right now. And that's another reason why I'm not trimming my uh, major positions because I have so much cash on the side. That's a lot of cash on the side, <laughs> especially yeah. for a market that went straight up, right? No, exactly. And is that is the reasoning you have, uh, you, you know, kind of uh, the, the cash sitting on the side, like, you know, is that is that because you're you're maybe more wary about some of the, you know, potential macroeconomic fallouts that we have, right? I mean, we have like interest rate palace come out and said he expects unemployment to go up. So almost like kind of hedging uh, against, you know, maybe a potential uh, economic downturn, recession, depression, like, you, you know, the terminology maybe doesn't really matter too much on, on like how severe it is, but that that kind of like that's 30% is a nice safety net to, to have if, you know, potentially things fall apart. Yeah, for sure. It's just, like I said, I didn't recognize it was going to be a V-shaped recovery. So I think while it's really good to have cash on the side and you can make great, you know, you get paid 5% to have your cash on the side, right? Um, or 3 to 5%, let's say, depending on where you're, you're putting it and what trading account you're in. At the same time, you know, there, there's two sides to that story. When the market goes straight up, had I deployed that cash, I would have made more than it sitting there right? And so the whole AI theme, I wasn't expecting to take off and just have, and this is just a good lesson, right? Like it, so, but am I happy I have the cash there now? Absolutely. And I had taken that cash through some uh, long puts that I had had during 2021, some of the shorts that I had, and also trimming during that time. And I just hadn't redeployed it. But am I nervous about some of the macro? Absolutely. I live with a perma bear. <laughs> you know, he was on the trading floor. That's what he did. And so like, I live with a perma bear. And so I have to kind of balance it because he sees a lot of these macroeconomic factors. I'm aware they're there, but I can't like go all the way over to that side. So I just try to be balanced in my approach. And you're right, that cash is a hedge. And the thing is though, most people don't get long when the market drops, right? I did get long at 3,500, 3,600, but I thought it was gonna have more time. And so, you know, I just think that's always the hard thing. That's why I guess you're looking to, benchmark, you know, the Qs or benchmark the SPY in your trading portfolio, not that you're going to like five times it. Yeah, no, exactly. The interest rates are concerning because no. they're at today. I'm looking up at my chart. That's why my eyes are up here. <laughs> you know, you got the two year at 4.7. That's where it's been hanging around. You have the 10 year at 3.85. Um, you know, it seems like when it's hit that 4%, the market is sold off. Uh, you have oil that has now jumped again. It's all up to 79. At least that's my futures. Uh, the oil, you know, is running gold's kind of hanging around. So you, you know, the question is, is inflation going to come rearing its ugly head back? And, you know, there are signs that we really could be entering now into another inflationary period. Um, I don't really see that inflation is easing. I don't see it when I go to the grocery store. Again, this is anecdotal. Um, I don't see it when I go to the grocery store, but even when I'm looking at com you know, commodities, they're starting to rise again, interest starting to rise again. And that's where these small businesses, your mid cap and small cap businesses will have a hard time, right? Because how are they going to keep up with borrowing money, putting capital to work, 
with these interest rates, I don't know, what are they paying? 12%, 11%? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think like, you know, these, the interest rate environment is, is definitely kind of, kind of scary, right? I mean, we, we've already seen some bank failures because of it. Um, and, you know, obviously there was, you know, some mismanagement when it came to some of those banks, but, you know, that's neither, neither here nor there, right? I mean, it was like, uh, I believe like three of the four biggest uh, bank failures in the past, like 20 years happened within like a six month period or even maybe even a shorter period of time. And so, isn't that shocking when you think of Lehman and Bear? Yeah, that exactly. these banks were bigger than that. Yeah, and it seems like it kind of got swept under the rug. To, you know, I mean, I maybe mm -hmm. it just uh, you know, kind of be, maybe the Twitter era or the social media era where it's like you know we, everybody kind of freaked out maybe for like a week or so, but it seems like nobody really mentions you know Silicon Valley Bank or or any of these other ones that that kind of uh, you know exploded and. You know, we had like, you know, Janet Yellen come out and say that the banking system's fine. And, you know, luckily we haven't really seen too many other, uh, you know, bank failures uh, following that. Right. I mean, we're seeing a lot of the regional banks maybe struggle, but, um, you know, it, it is kind of in, like like we've kind of alluded to. Right. An interesting time uh, as we're going forward. Right. I mean, people are going to try to you know predict what what the Fed's going to do. You know, the CPI print. And it seems like the market moves on everybody's kind of, uh, you know, the, the feds hanging words. So, you know, do you kind of, uh, you know, I know, I know you talk a little bit about like the swing trades and other things like that. Do you hold a lot of weight when it comes to, you know, maybe some of these like fed meetings, so to speak. Right. I mean, cause it seems like maybe more so a few months ago, but um, you know, whether it was uh drone pile was hawkish or uh, dovish or um, you know, one of these other bird metaphors, so to speak of yeah. like, how he was kind of describing um, you know, as things are going forward, that would make the market shift. And it seemed like he had all this power. Um, so, you know, do you kind of, I guess, look more so or try to predict, uh, you know, trade along that? Or, uh, you know, do you just kind of try to stay away from that? Because, you know, I mean, it seems like he has he, Powell himself has has so much power. Yeah, I mean, I, I took off most of my options. I had options long positions and I took most of them off coming into this week just because, I mean, it'll move like, I, even when it hasn't moved, like maybe, you know, five per 4% or whatever, you're still getting these huge downturns, huge upturns and the mark, the options prices will just go, you know, you could lose your options dollars in like one day of pal, right? If you're long. So I've kind of stayed out of that. I, I do have some long-term options that won't really be affected by the gyration of pals, you know, speech. However, I am going into it cautious because people seem to not be listening or believing him. You know, they're that's what I hear. And that's what even the banks are saying. They've been calling for, or the, an, the market analysts, they're calling for rate cuts. And Powell keeps saying, we're not doing a rate cut. And it's like, they literally don't believe him. So, you know, I believe him. I don't think they're going to do any rate cuts. And, you know, if he keeps raising, I don't know what that's going to do to the market, but that's why I'm staying cautious um, because if he keeps raising and he doesn't cut, my guess is the market will go down eventually, right? So, um, so I'm just keeping myself more neutral in the market besides my long-term positions. Yeah, no, and, and I agree with you too. It seems like the market delusion is just always calling for this this rate cut. But I mean, he's been, you know, kind of consistently kind of saying higher for longer, expect more pain, like all these kind of things. But you know, the market it seems like maybe it's just on on fin to it too. But I mean, like it seems well, like people don't believe people don't believe it. Plus, he keeps talking about quantitative tightening, right? That they're going to take liquidity out of the market. But then, what happened in the banking crisis? It wasn't quantitative easing, just like COVID. COVID wasn't quantitative easing, but yet it's providing liquidity. I mean, I don't know enough about economics and how the markets work, but at a very basic level, he threw liquidity back in the market, right? Oh, 100%, right? I mean, it was like, yeah. That's like, why it went like this again. <laughs> yeah, it's but it's exactly like you're describing, right? I mean, it's like, it's 
quantitative easing, but they're just not really calling it that, it seems right, right? I mean, they're dumping liquidity into the market. And the market has, you know, kind of responded in like in a sense where it seems like, you know, it's, it's, there's like, you know, unemployment's kind of going up, um, you know, inflation's still running hot, but it seems like the stock, mar stock market is still performing very well. Um, and it almost seems kind of like there's a, there's a disconnect between, you know, that, the you know, obviously is anecdotal, but I'm noticing it as well, too, right? That my grocery bill is still, you know, higher gas prices still haven't really come down. Um, going to, out to eat. There's a yeah. surcharge everywhere you go now, at least where we are. No, there's same literally theory. a surcharge and then paying how much for the, not that I don't want to tip people, I do. But no, I agree with you. Though. I mean, it's and it's like right. I mean, prices everywhere are still kind of going up and they're still elevated. And it seems like to me too, it's like, you know, when you know the the capital X expenditures of businesses, especially like you know maybe like a consumer staple like a Target or a Costco. Uh, for example, because, you know, they're your holdings, right? I mean, mm -hmm. gas to transport all those goods and, and mm -hmm. whatnot into the store is more expensive. And, uh, you know, workers now, right? I mean, that there's in increasing the minimum wage to, to $15 an hour. Um, and I'm sure like, you know, the electricity bill, power, energy prices are, are elevated as well. So, you know, that just to operate these storefronts is it's more expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, so is that something that, you know, I mean, or, you know, and, and because of that, they've basically increased the prices of their underlying goods because they need to have those margins in order to be a successful business. I mean, that's just, you know, the, the facts of the matter, right? Um, so, you know, is that something that you're kind of, I guess, almost like looking at when it comes to some of these consumer staple stocks that, that you're, uh, you know, you're holding in your portfolio, you're kind of like looking at, you know, maybe gross revenue when their earnings come out and, and other things like that to see, you know, are people still, you know, shopping at these? Obviously, you know, the revenue um, is probably going to be a little bit higher, but, you know, their capital X expenditures are still, you know, are probably a little bit more elevated than, uh, I guess, a, a, you know, a quarter, maybe a, a year or two ago. Uh, for sure. I think Costco's in a league of its own. It's different because of the, you know, membership revenue and the membership revenue that they take in is the thing that allows them to operate on a margin of two to 13%. So basically their, you know, operating margin is between two and 13, right? Not that they don't have some goods that are higher than that. So really that's more of a membership base. If their membership was to go down, that would be a concern. At the same time, Costco's membership renewal rate has been stable for so long. So, and then also you get all types of people that shop at, shop at Costco, right? It's not just, um, it, it, you get a wide variety of everybody. It caters to so many different types of consumers. And that is sticky even in a downturn. And it does bring more people in when prices do get high, but it doesn't necessarily go away, if that makes sense. So I think they're kind of in a league on their own, A, because of the membership, like I mentioned, B, because they cater to a wide range of consumer, no matter what their economic status is. So I'm not worried about Costco. I think that it, it doesn't mean that their stock's not going to dip. I mean, it dipped to 406, you know, a year and a half ago, and I bought more at that time. Um, I think they're good target. Yeah. I mean, they're more concerning, I think, because price of goods going up, like you said, cost of gas to transport. Um, but I think it's the smaller businesses that really are the ones that take more of the hit because they don't have their own depots and places to, you know, hold the goods that are not running in their own fleet. Costco runs their own fleet. I don't know if, you know, trucking fleet, right? For sure, Target, I think it would it's a concern. And it showed in their last earnings. You know, a lot of that was theft, but who knows how much of that was their gross margin shrinking. Yeah. And how much are the consumers going to be willing to take on these extra costs? The only caveat is, at least where I live, people still are not getting laid off. I mean, yeah. tech is booming here. No, and I think, uh, you know, as, as we're kind of like looking at, right, the unemployment numbers, whether like, you know, how reliable those are, I, I don't really know. But I mean, the unemployment isn't really, uh, I guess, like, 
increasing as mm -hmm. as uh, much as Powell has kind of uh, you know hinted at that that he's thought. So I mean, it does seem like the the workforce is still pretty resilient. Um, you know, it's it's how much is that because of you know maybe the gig economy and that kind of thing. I I don't really know, but um, you know, I think the whole like underlying consumer aspect of it is is really interesting, and it's something to definitely keep an eye on, right? I mean, that's mm -hmm. who's going to start feeling the pain first is the is the consumer. Uh, and then it's going to kind of trickle into the businesses, um, you know, for sure. So, um, but, but on that note, right. I mean, you, you talked about like unemployment, some of the macroeconomic factors, like, uh, you know, what is the, uh, you know, I guess outlook that you have for, for the rest of this year? Um, is there a specific sector that you're kind of keeping a close eye on? Uh, maybe like looking at it to see like, Hey, you know, maybe it's tech or maybe it's, um, you know, defense, or maybe it's, uh, you know, consumer staples. Is there something that you think, um, you know, throughout the rest of this year that you're like, uh, I guess, keeping a closer eye on than maybe, uh, uh, maybe you, you haven't been in, in previous times? Yeah, I mean, I think what I'm really looking at in my area, and we, we're pretty close to the tech community here. I mean, our, the whole, every neighborhood around our area is employed by tech. And, you know, Microsoft's, they have uh, foregone some of their leases in like Bellevue, but their main campus, they're remodeling and expanding. Meta just came in here and they have a, I don't know, I think it's a hundred thousand square foot campus opening up soon. So I think once we hear that it starts hitting those jobs, and when I start seeing that People aren't going out to restaurants, even with all these surcharges. I mean, everywhere you go, it's crowded, right? And so it seems like the consumer still has a lot of dollars that they have in their pocket, whether they're putting it on the charge card or not, they're still shopping. They're still going out to dinner. They're still going to the movies. Look at what the blockbusters did this last weekend. Was the Barbie movie the biggest selling of all time? Yeah, I, I believe so. Was it? Yeah, that and like uh, Oppenheimer, like the, mm -hmm. the combination of the two is like the biggest, uh, you know, blockbuster weekend in, in, you know, quite some time. I mean, you think of like two, when I personally think of like the great financial crisis, people weren't going out. They were losing their homes left and right. I mean, it was horrible. You saw it all around you. I think the biggest thing that's going to, and I know a lot of people have talked about this, so I'm not bringing up anything new here, is the office space because- for example, even with Amazon, they're only requiring their workers in the office um, three days a week into downtown Seattle. And so if this could, if if the trend work from home sticks, which it looks like businesses are still having a hard time getting workers back into the office, Microsoft, it's optional, I believe. That's the question, like what's going to happen with all of those buildings and all of that real real estate? And I do see a lot of for lease properties here when it comes to commercial real estate. So that's definitely a concern. And, and a lot of people are talking about it. Like I said, I'm not the first person to bring this up, but I can actually see that in my community. And we're more in the suburbs of Seattle, very safe, low crime area, um, and you're still seeing a lot of four lease buildings, huge buildings here, like AT&T occupied a building here. They left and, you know, that building's just standing empty now. But I think that's really the work from home, not as much as people are leaving this area. Yeah, and I think that that also puts like, you know, that's part of the reason why, uh, you know, maybe some of the regional banks, uh, you know, might be in some in some hairy times, right? I mean, a lot of these, um, you know, regional banks have loaned to, um, you know, whatever companies or, or whoever, maybe a mom and pop, uh, or maybe even like a, you know, more of a uh, commercial real estate investing company um, to, you know, get these these properties and then you know the, these uh, commercial properties are evaluated based on their rent and if they're 50 percent occupied and they kind of got valued at 75 or even you know maybe even higher um you know it, it's going to devalue the property i mean we, we've seen it mm -hmm. in san francisco and in chicago i see a lot of these headlines of um you know xyz building 
basically getting cut in half from the amount that it's being bought for and then people having to sell. So that is definitely a very concerning aspect of it. I mean, obviously we had 2008, it seemed like it was more of a, you know, housing. Yeah. Personal housing. But this time it could be, you know, commercial real estate. That's, that's the one thing that does really worry me uh, going forward for sure. So um, yeah. And, and people, they say, that, oh, well, everybody has these low interest rates. They're never going to sell their homes, which is true right now. But if people start losing their jobs, it doesn't matter whether they have a 3% interest rate or a 2.5% interest rate. And then the homes, there isn't a home around here under seven figures. You just can't find them, which, you know, same same down in Silicon Valley, Right. And so that means people were having to get, you know, balloon payments. And yeah, maybe they could afford it at 3% when they had both spouses, both people in the home working. But that'll be a really interesting thing. I mean, I don't want that to happen. I think, you know, it's such a backwards way to say, let's lose jobs and put people out of work so we can bring interest rates down and depress the economy. I don't know. That's that's probably a whole different topic because then people go and they get on unemployment and then we're trying to not have the government like, you know, whole can of worms doesn't make a lot of sense. But when we're coming to housing, will that I'm not saying it's going to cause a housing crash, but what will happen to housing if people do start getting laid off? Yeah, because they were probably taking out balloon mortgages. Yeah. And it's definitely, you know, you know, something quite something that can be a concern right going forward. So, I mean, uh, it's 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 interesting how all these kind of markets are, are really connected. Right. I mean, it, it, you can kind of just you know see it as you're as you're lining out. Right. I mean, it's obviously the underlying economy. So hopefully, uh, you know, we don't we don't go down that like very bad, dark path because that's never good for anybody. Um, but, um, you know, at the at the end of the day, I think that there is some some aspects here that, uh, you know, uh, of the of the overall stock market, the housing market, that kind of thing. Like, I, I, I think like, you know, in the end, America is going to be resilient. I mean, you know, I believe in the entrepreneur and the aspects of that um, here in, in this country. So hopefully things things end up working out. But um, you've been very generous with your time. And I really do appreciate you coming on. So why don't you tell people, um, you know, what you got going on and where they can find you? I'm on Twitter under Mama Vester. So that's M-O-M-M-A-V-E-S-T-O-R. And I love psychology and trading. Yeah, awesome stuff. So I will link. And you can hear us on Wolf on his spaces. Usually I'm on there three to four times a week and you've been on there also. So yeah. Great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've just kind of recently gotten connected with Wolf. So uh, hopefully I'll be on some more of his going forward, but um, shout out to Wolf. Yeah. Shout out to Wolf. Um, yeah. So he's, he's been great, but yeah, uh, definitely go ahead and follow Kim at Mama Vester. I'll link that in the show notes too, if in case you're, uh, you know, struggling to find her for some reason. And, uh, and yeah. I can um, send you my, I don't know if you want my savvy trader portfolio, but I could send that to you. Wolf and all those people are on it and you know, you people can see what I'm invested in. Yeah. And sure. my, perf- and my performance. Yeah. we can It doesn't, leave. it doesn't show options and it only shows my performance since I started two months ago, but I've had the stocks a long time, but. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. We can link that in the show notes too. So for those uh, interested in looking at your actual portfolio, they can do that. So yeah. Kim, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you.